Hello, Gretchen Bonas. I'm so excited to be bringing you episode nine of season five of Radio Cachimbona. This is a podcast hosted and produced by me, Yvette Borja, and it's an abolitionist podcast that is documenting the fierce migrant resistance that's happening to state repression here in these Arizona borderlands. This is a leftist law and politics podcast, and thank you so much for listening. I am very excited about this episode where I brought back friend of the podcast and deportation defense lawyer, Jehan Lene Romero, and we recorded this episode in relation to a viral law Twitter tweet that went viral last year, advising students to, quote, work every waking moment possible to succeed in the profession. And we shared how we avoided the toxic aspects of legal culture, how we became aware of the tricks that law students use to perform well in class, and just generally try and demystify the law school pedagogy. And Jehan, of course, because she's so generous, said that she would be down to come back onto the podcast to discuss more about lawyering or law school, whatever you all might want to discuss. And since I recently made the transition into legal journalism, would also be happy to field questions about what it's like to make that transition. So I also wanted to say that if you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron for three to ten dollars a month. If you pay five dollars, then you will get access to the season five lit reviews, the back catalog of lit reviews, and you'll get early access to episodes. So this was an episode that went out to the patrons last year. Also, I know that there are people who want to support the podcast, but maybe aren't able to do so monetarily right now. And another way to support the podcast is to leave an Apple podcast rating and review. Thank you so much to the people who listened to my plea during the last episode and wrote a review. Nat Yosh gave a five-star review and said they really appreciated this recent episode about land trusts. They've been meaning to learn more. Someone with the username Lifelong Fan said this is an excellent podcast. They've been following it since it began as Cerebronas. The host doesn't make any assumptions about the reader, tries to explain everything and makes complex topics approachable the podcast is interesting relevant and very educative educative (laughs) 11 out of 10 oh that's very sweet so thank you so much to those two folks and you know if you so feel compelled please just share why you keep listening to the podcast and what you appreciate about it and if you have other questions that you want us to tackle in a similar kind of episode in the future, then please email me at radiocachimbona at gmail.com. You can also continue these conversations on social media. You can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I think that that's it. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Bye. Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm very excited today to have Jehan Lene Romero here today to talk about a very important and frequently 
asked topic, which is law school and lawyering advice. And this episode was inspired because of that deranged tweet that went viral about quote, working every free moment that you have in order to succeed as a law student slash lawyer that then kind of prompted everyone to give their advice because everyone had a reaction one way or another because it was obviously a very intense statement to make. (laughs) And so this episode is Jayhan and mine's take on the question. And I wanted to start by just giving, I think, necessary context for the conversation. So Jayhan, where did you go to undergrad slash law school? And also, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Yeah. You're a treasured guest, as you know. Oh, that's, it's really my honor. So thank you, Yvette, for having me here. I went to undergrad at UCLA, and then I worked for a year in an AmeriCorps program and then went to law school at NYU. Are you the first in your family to graduate from college or like, what is your status in that regard? <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, yeah. So oh, yeah, your mom's a teacher. Yeah, my mom's a teacher. Totally yeah. forgot. No, she was, she was first generation college. Actually, I think my dad was too. Um, but yeah, so they were, they did great. <laughs> they did a lot of higher ed. <laughs> they did great. <laughs> they went into education. <laughs> my mom's, I think hers was she she got here when she was around she came twice but when she was in middle school she basically learned English and um yeah and she went on to go to college and everything so yeah she definitely was doing the first gen um life back then a long time ago when there was much less support too oh my gosh amazing and then your dad your dad's Nicaraguan right my dad's white he's from oh yeah oh okay okay what was your socioeconomic status growing up? I don't know. What, what, what you can categorize me? I guess we're no. Well, class, the issue so with I this don't... is like nobody can like accurately right. gauge, right. and yeah. there really isn't an objective measure because exactly. quote unquote middle class. That's there's a lot say, of people yeah. I went to law school with who are convinced that they're quote middle class and they are not middle class. They're like rich. <laughs> right. And I'm like, does middle class even exist? Right. So I, we're not rich, but my parents were both teachers when I was growing up. So like public school teacher salary, and they were good at saving and doing that. But they, um, I was really lucky. I got full scholarships for undergrad and for law school. So like my mom would try to help out my brothers with what she could for their education. But, um, but yeah, it was definitely like a lot of saving and sacrifice and not like generational wealth or anything. (laughs) Oh, I think that actually really is like kind of the quintessential, like middle-class family, isn't it? Two teachers. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) um okay great 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 so I went to Yale undergrad and then Stanford law school I am the first in my family to graduate from college and my socioeconomic status growing up I would say was working class (laughs) but then I don't even know see like this whole thing because like I've had talks with my partner where I'm like oh I had like a significantly better quality of life than you did so Mm-mm. was I working class kind of confusing <laughs> yeah see it all depends too because then technically working class means you sell your labor so like oh yeah my parents definitely people. sell their labor 
Well, like a lot of people will qualify under that definition. So, well, yeah, working class, wouldn't that be your parent? Wait, yeah, working yeah, exactly. class is yeah. like anybody who what, doesn't have inherited wealth. Is that really yeah, true? That's not how that term is used, though. No, it's in not the how popular it's discourse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. Yvette and I are caveating all this, but I think you get the picture when we lay out <laughs> like <laughs> our parents' jobs, our quality of life. Like, yeah, my parents bought a house. Again, it was like all like, yeah, they were really saving and doing that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, they, you know, they were teachers, so like they get pension and things like that. Um, oh yeah my mom does not have a pen no it exactly. is my dad <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah exactly so these are kind of all relevant things like my mom cleans houses and my dad well j- drove taxis and then uber came along and then I would, it's uber um, mm-hmm. so it's part of that whole narrative situation but like I grew up in a suburb of the bay area I went to private school for most of my education like starting in fourth grade up until I graduated from high school and I did have partial scholarships but also like my parents were able to make enough to afford at least partial tuition there everyone's situation is different and I think it's just important to name these things because Mm -hmm. if you just keep it at the descriptors then you'll have people who are wealthy being like oh I don't know I think I'm just upper middle class (laughs) yeah that one always made me laugh (laughs) I know it's like that's not a thing you're just rich like just say you're rich Um, but no, I, so I wanted to start this conversation because I feel like this is something that happens in the legal profession, which is self-flagellation that's disguised as hard work, but actually like isn't productive or helpful. Like the original tweeting question reminded me of the importance of working smarter, not harder. Like as the 1L during fall that first semester I fell prey to the temptation of validating yourself and your worthiness of being in law school Mm. by working yourself every moment possible you know because I think even though it's like intellectually I know that meritocracy does not exist I think on an emotional level I haven't really accepted that and so that Mm -hmm. is the that's the mode that I was in finals for example can be like three to four or eight hours, depending on the format of it. And I remember that I took my first final and that evening, like the like Latinx affinity group threw like a mixer, like little party, like being like, yay, celebrating the end of your first final. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, like, what are you planning on doing after this? And I was like, I'm going to go study for my final tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, it was just so silly because it's like my brain was so fried from my first final. And, but I was still, I was just caught up in like that toxicity. So I wanted to ask you, how did you avoid the toxic culture of performing working all the time? I'm laughing a lot right now, just on the inside and outside. (laughs) So I think just part of you ever laugh on the outside, but not on the inside. That's strange. You're right. You're right. Dude, what is Jihan doing? I was just <laughs> I was actually manipulating me when I, she laughed. I was holding it in so much to not laugh. That's why I was like, um, while you were talking, um, I was just a flashback of memories was coming into my head. Oh so my gosh, I, I'm glad I, you're I, laughing now. Yeah, I know me too. It was very traumatic after. Um, but I graduated in 2015. So y'all who are in law school right now are thinking about it. Um my everything that I'm talking about might be super outdated by now um I just working all the time never works for me relax (laughs) yeah working all the time just never works for me so um I don't know that I completely avoided the toxicity either um I think part of me 
I didn't, for the first semester, I didn't know everybody was like looking at horn books or treatises to get answers. I didn't know Me there were outlines about either. classes. I'm yeah. still upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys... <laughs> need to find like I had mentors too who were like older than me I just think maybe they thought it was like regular common knowledge um and just didn't think to tell me that well that's I don't know why you I need to out. ask about people's parents economic and like yeah. educational backgrounds because they might have thought that was common sense because their parents are lawyers like yeah. there's a significant amount of people there were significant people in my law school class whose parents were lawyers judges mm-hmm professors yeah yeah so I think all of that and like right so I missed out on that everybody just so you know that's definitely part of the working smarter not harder <laughs> there's kind of like wait but I think we of... should explicitly say it because we haven't even like really said what it is which is that people you, yeah. like look up case briefs and the examples and explanations yeah. books I'm gonna even go backwards because in case you're not in law school but you're listening to this podcast um the way that law school is taught the professors like really they're not your normal even like you know professors in college aren't always like have the best pedagogy but they at least are trying to explain material to you in a lecture and um, the way that traditional law school professors teach it's supposedly the socratic method where you're supposed to go do reading and then you come back in your own call and they will ask people questions to get what the reading was about and then ask people questions to see what the law was that came out of that reading. And you actually don't really learn very well that way because you're just hearing answers from your fellow students. And rarely, if professors are teaching in this traditional way, they don't really lecture to you or say a lot. Some do. And the better ones do. And the better ones will like have a better system of not hiding the ball. So anyways, I went in super naive and I thought that's when we're going to class, we were trying to learn in class. And so what Yvette and I are talking about- Crazy is, thought. Yeah, yeah, crazy thought. So what Yvette and I are talking about is your final is your whole grade, usually in law school, um, if your school has grades. Um, so your final is your whole grade and you are supposed to basically actually apply this law that the teacher or the professor didn't really teach you yet. Um, and that you were supposed to be gleaning from your reading and from the questions that were being asked in class. And you're supposed to like get this hypothetical issue spot and then tell the professor how to apply the law correctly. But it turns out there's actually outlines of the whole professor's class that would tell people, oh, here's the case that we're reading today. Here's the questions that the professor is going to ask. And especially if they're a professor that's been around for a while, and they kind of keep the whole same script for all of their 1L classes. So they're always going to be asking the same questions every time. Um, so people literally had scripts for classes that would tell them how to answer questions. So they wouldn't even be nervous in class. Um, they, I was really nervous when I was on call. So um, they would I always have those. Nervous. I yeah. was nervous all through our contracts because that class was one where like, you would cold call, not where you were assigned like a panel date, mm-hmm. which... I think was the most terrifying deployment of this you know, supposed <laughs> Socratic method. Yeah. Because also this professor would like do this thing where it was cold call, but actually like you were the person that if you were on call, you were on call for that whole day as if you were asked to prepare for panel, but like it could be any day. Yeah. And that's and, the whole day. That's terrifying. And I didn't, well, this was also when I didn't know about how you could just find the shortcut answer through these outlines that, as you say, you know, sometimes can function literally like scripts. Mm -hmm. I had no idea because, 
you know what? I'll just be really honest. Like the Latinx affinity group, it wasn't a home for me. The first day I went there, you know what? Like, who knows what went into making this decision, but they decided to have Chipotle for, for the <laughs> for the lunch. And I immediately like really found them to be foul. Like for that re- <laughs> like for that reason, and for that reason, like for other reasons at that initial gathering. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm on my own here. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like, you know, those are kind of like the affinity groups from like the Latinx Student Association kind of usually function as some of these information sharing groups so that, you know, oh, you can share things like class outlines and whatever. But, you know, that all depends on you meshing with like the affinity group. And uh, those just, not my experience because the Latinx students at Stanford Law School were by and large white Latinxes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anybody that was working class was like still so, coinc- you know, coincidentally, but I, you know, like not coincidentally light skinned still. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like when I, it's kind of wild. Like I sometimes go on the, like Stanford Latinx Law Student Association Instagram page because they started doing this thing that's like blah like blah 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 student takeovers and I'm just like holy shit so many of you all just like look straight up European like <laughs> like not like oh like you know like Duke on the was talking about the 18th century face it's like I think I knew what she's yeah. talking about because it's your face <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's um, true. It's true. Yeah. I think it's, and so it's I didn't like, feel welcome. Yeah. So it's like, I didn't get that information shared with me until like, I don't need, I, I obviously like clandestinely found that out. Like probably looked over someone's shoulder and was like, what the fucking fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, at NYU, I, I had all the mentorship that I could ever want. Like they, I really did. Like I said, I was in a scholarship program. I think I think that, like you said, maybe because of socioeconomic status, it just wasn't thought of to share. Not like people would have shared if I had asked. I didn't know to ask. People didn't know. I didn't know kind of thing. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like I would have asked if yeah. I had known that was something you could ask somebody. <laughs> yeah. And people would have shared with me. So like, yeah, I had good mentors. It's just also I had a concussion my first semester, which was the type where it hurts to read. So that was, <laughs> that was another thing. Um, <laughs> but also so what? how did you survive <laughs> I don't know I remember it hurting to read and me still having to feeling like I had to read and like I know looking back I'm like I should have asked for some type of an accommodation so again if you're in pain if you're like if you're <laughs> if you're I also didn't know you could ask for accommodation but um if you're in pain and, and bad things are happening to you there are literally accommodations where people can help you read things they can give you software to help you read things I just didn't know so just these were just things I didn't know and I don't, I can't even tell you that how I figured out that there was horn books and treatises are just like books that also summarize the law and you need, those are great for finals, especially eventually I did find outlines for finals. Um, but if you had missed something or you don't understand the outline, the horn books are good, like recaps of the law. So it'd be like a better version of cliff notes, I guess, like to explain actually pulling out what you were supposed to be learning. Um, yeah because as you say like in the in the lectures if you're a professor it's engaging in that kind of traditional Socratic method in which law school is taught then 
you're not told what the answer is. Like yep. you, you, the professor presents the question that the case presented to the judge and then like students debate mm-hmm. as if like they were the ones who were oh writing the opinion. And then a lot of times like the professor won't even like clarify and say who exactly like said the holding correctly. So mm-hmm the the examples and explanation books are sometimes are like critical really because Mm -hmm. like you won't have been told that directly in class and so to Mm -hmm. glean like what the rule is from the case you read the paragraph which like explains this is the principle that you're supposed to glean from this case this is how it was applied in future cases blah 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 blah. here's a concrete example of that here's a concrete example of that I will say that like I tell everybody about these things now um just in case you are actually going to go to law school And I would also say like Yvette's original question was how did I stay, you know, work-life balance? I just can't, I can't work straight without some type of break. So I think, and right now, honestly, like I'm having a hard time fully remembering all of my first semester, but I do remember like going out and exploring the city and exploring New York. So like, honestly, as much as I can tell you, like, it's okay to ask for help. You're going to remember the good memories and you're not going to remember like studying as much. Um, and even though this was the semester that I didn't know about horn books, that I had a concussion, I did fine grade-wise. And that was my worst semester grade-wise. So like I had, you know, like B plus average. And that's like, it's not that's like, so I'm going to go, you had I'm not going to go clerk you had a B plus average. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not going to go. I would have yeah. had you clerk for me if I had known yeah. you had a concussion. <laughs> <laughs> so So just to say, like, it's actually fine. And just to, like, kind of put that in perspective, too. Okay, so you had your amazing B-plus average with a concussion. Was applying for summer internships hard for you? Or stressful? What was that process like for you? Stressful is a good question. Um, Yeah, so... I knew I wanted to go into public interest law and um, NYU actually has a pretty, they're a private university. They still like every law school kind of put you on the path to becoming a associate at a big law firm, but they do have a bigger public interest um, program. So they had a career fair for one else. And that one was actually really good. I got some job offers out of it and I ended up going to so this wasn't, I guess this, like, I feel like very lucky because some of the folks that were mentoring me who were three L's, they told me about boutique law firm in LA that did civil rights litigation plaintiff side. So suing the LA County sheriffs for having dogs that were trained to maul people, um, suing the LA County sheriffs for raiding the wrong house with the search warrant and then throwing flash grenades and like harming people, right? So, and then I was working with one of their attorneys that was using the alien tort statute law to try and sue companies in other countries that have done things like bomb villages, literally to put it down oil pipelines and bribe officials. So like, I was just lucky because talking Wait, is to this those where mentors, you worked on the Nestle yeah, yeah, child yeah. slavery yeah. case. Yeah. And to be clear, but on the side of trying to hold Nestle accountable. <laughs> 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 yes. That's why yeah. you're on the podcast. <laughs> 
but it was kind of interesting because basically the the court was getting more conservative this is like the same summer that Shelby County came down brutal bad Supreme Court and they had just also ruled that you couldn't use the alien tort statute when events occurred outside of the country even if the company has like holdings in the U.S. and things like that so I was writing a lot of updates to circuit courts about the bad precedent that had just come down to the Supreme Court a lot of the circuit court cases were not gonna go well but it was a great internship all this to say like because I knew that I wanted to work in public interest and back then I was thinking immigration or civil rights litigation I had I had folks to like reach out to like other law students and ask them where they would recommend going and I would recommend like asking if you don't because I don't I didn't have like lawyers in my family so I didn't have folks that I could ask about that. So for me, it was asking a lot of like law students, the career counselors, I think would have been good, but it was just more comfortable for me, I think, to talk to older law students who already seem to know what they were doing. Not yeah, older, they I, weren't I like older than me, like just ahead of they me. They were ahead of you, yeah. yeah. Well, they weren't necessarily older than you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like because the, the first year curriculum is incredibly dry and literally has not changed since like, 150 years ago that the first law school was founded which is like property constitutional law but actually at stanford like you only focus on the commerce clause you don't even get to the good part which is the 14th amendment <laughs> and contracts torts civil procedure criminal law and there you had that was the core curriculum that you had to take there were no electives and I did go in knowing that I wanted to use the law degree for doing my part to fight for positive social change. And the curriculum was not giving that to me. Although I did have an amazing civil procedure professor who was able to contextualize civil procedure cases and make us aware of the stakes at issue, which I think is a bit difficult at times considering what civil procedure is and she was amazing but still I mean that was one out of the five core classes that I had to take and I desperately needed to be in a space where I felt like I was going in the direction that I had initially intended to go in when I started law school so I did the workers' rights pro bono and the lawyer there told us about the non- the like legal rights nonprofit that he worked at that did impact litigation. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like I'll apply there because I really like Mike's vibe because I did not like 99% of the people around me's vibe at <laughs> the time. So like literally just like me thinking that somebody was like-minded and cared about the same things I did was the guiding thing that made me apply to that organization to work at and it's pretty amazing that it did work out because that is actually where I met my partner Joseph oh my gosh I didn't know that or if I did I forgot that's awesome yeah (laughs) we were both the interns for the national origin and language discrimination team oh cool yeah and our cubicles are next to each other. <laughs> I love that. That was part of how we interacted a lot. Well, it was because like, yeah, we were on all the same projects and then also we were just like right next to each other. And yeah, I remember sometimes I'm, I was reading like Amy Césaire for the first time and I was like, oh my God, like you need to read this. And I was like, 
Wow. I love that. Those yeah, were, like, I think you such better times. <laughs> I think you brought up a good point too for like folks that aren't getting guidance, like if they're not bringing public interest, if you're doing public interest, which I hope you are, <laughs> if they're not bringing that to your law school, looking out for opportunities, your 1-0 year to do that, whether it's like externship might be a lot, but honestly, the I think the way you can do it 1-0 is pro bono usually because yeah, there are regulations about not work, not being able to be employed if you're enrolled full-time in law school, right? I think California has more regulations than other places. Oh, okay. Yeah. I went to school in California. Yeah. And they were very strict there. Like you could Mm -hmm. not work your first year. You had to get like some weird letters if you wanted to. I remember, but we, so our school also had like these um, week, and I don't know if if your school did too, but um, programs run by students during um, winter break and spring break where you could choose to go on a trip or like go help out pro bono. And I actually learned a lot on both of those trips. One of them was working for the juvenile defenders in New Orleans, which has changed its name. But also really sad that, you know, like they needed a whole juvenile defender unit for the city. And then the other one was working for the Florence Project actually in Arizona for a week. Yeah, I was going to say that there, there was, yes, that we also had those and that my first year, I did that for my spring break where I went to the Southern Poverty Law Center to help with their documentation work with ICE detention centers in Alabama and Georgia, Stewart Detention Center and this county jail in Alabama. And that was actually what inspired me to, to you know, train myself to be the best possible deportation defense lawyer for people who are detained because of what I saw on that trip. Just horrific for sure like stray outside of the curriculum I felt like there were so many people who were you know really obsessed with getting H's or whatever even though you know the whole like the benefit of going to my fucking school was (laughs) you were not (laughs) supposed to think about grades Mm -hmm. um and they kind of like just felt safer only focusing on the reading and classwork and I mean, that's fine if you want to have that kind of cabined, idyllic, but it's not idyllic though. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm like, the, the <laughs> idyllic situation I feel like is an undergrad, you know, like yeah. when I was taking my seminar class with Black Panther Kathleen Cleaver. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but <laughs> it's not that, but like, I know that some people still like, gravitate towards that and I think that if you are interested in doing public interest law which okay if you're listening to this I really hope that you are (laughs) I'm disappointed if you're not (laughs) I think it's important to seek out these kind of extracurricular ways of learning I mean because those actually will also better prepare you to be a public interest lawyer because law school is very theoretical to a fault Mm -hmm. So if you really only focus on the curriculum, like you can graduate not knowing how to do shit about shit before it comes to actual lawyering. Totally. Yeah. And like a lot of our professors, I mean, it all depends on your school, but a lot of like our professors were very academic. Like they didn't practice as lawyers for very long, if at all, but they, they did well in law school. They got amazing grades, like they're published writers, blah, blah, blah. And some of them, and even the the ones that we call them doctrinal, like Yvette was talking about that they're just teaching these kind of like core class curriculum that hasn't changed at all. And 
might not have anything to do with what you're saying later, but I had some great ones that like my pro professor was too. Um, so no knock on them, but they're not teaching you actually how to apply the law in when you're going out to be a lawyer. Right. Like they're not actually talking about being on the calendar, <laughs> what it means. <laughs> You only have like seven days to reply. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And okay, so this might be also outdated advice, but it just reminded me. So my school when I started, they had a great legal writing program. Like you had to take a whole class the whole year. I know some law schools don't. So to the ones that don't have a legal writing program, I would seek out whatever the legal writing class is to the extent that you do think you're going to be practicing and writing briefs and things like that. That's very wild. I didn't know that there was anybody that didn't do that. I think that's critical. Yeah. Um, I think it might be outdated. Cause I know that like there were some schools when I went to law school that didn't have it, but hopefully everybody's on board now. <laughs> yeah. Well, even just because a lot of employers will expect you to produce a writing sample. And if you're a 1L, then that would likely be the memo that you wrote during your legal research and writing class because you otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity to write a legal memo. I needed that class. Like I had no offense you to do. any of I my think schools. everybody needs that class. No, but I right? mean like I I went to public school and no offense to public school. Like oh I loved gosh. it. Wait, whatever. are you talking about UCLA? You're saying UCLA is the public school? I'm talking about growing up, learning how to write. Uh <laughs> UCLA is also a public school, but I wasn't talking about that. Okay, because like, I was like, really, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I'm just saying, like, I, my writing, I don't think was, like, as good as my peers. And even at UCLA, I took, if, if anyone's in college listening to this, I did take a lot of writing tutoring when I was at UCLA. So, oh, like, be, I don't, yeah, my writing wasn't great, but I was obviously in the majors that you do need to write a lot more. I was, and then in law school, too, like, I really did lean this was like one I'm not really comfortable going to office hours though I really think everybody should <laughs> definitely I also second that advice <laughs> yeah you have to go and I didn't realize what was going on in office hours <laughs> <laughs> that was another thing I didn't know about and I know that in college you should also be going to office hours but I, I didn't know right so I really did lean on my legal writing professor to help me a lot with my writing and like really help me rip it apart tell me like what's going what are the patterns that he was noticing that were like making it bad? So it's, it's kind of your chance to, like Yvette said, like get your writing up to where it needs to be, hopefully. Writing is an iterative process. And that's like the painstaking thing about writing is that you can always keep editing. That's the terror of it. And I feel like there's like a few things more painful than having to reread something you wrote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I was going to ask about what the 3L job search was like for you, which for me, like heavily involved clinics. So I can, I can just share that experience. And then you can share about your clinic experience if you want. Yeah. I think the 3L job search for public interest, there's a lot to talk about here. <laughs> okay. I'll start with it. I'll start with why clinics are beneficial to that process. Mm-hmm. So first I'll say that the clinics and externships that I did were like the most valuable in terms of me learning practically how to become a better deportation defense lawyer. And I think this is really hard because I genuinely understand that there's some people who are just like, I have no idea what kind of lawyering I want to do. And I was kind of I, I was really motivated by the spring break trip that I took 
and the detention centers that I saw. And I was like, I just want to be a lawyer that helps people get out of these cages. And so that kind of really helped focus me. And so I will say I benefited from that, but I did two clinics and an externship. The externship was deportation defense. The clinic that I did was immigration and then human rights law. And with immigration, I worked on an asylum brief and worked on detention conditions litigation uh, for detention centers in LA that were operated by I slash course civic slash Orange County. (laughs) The director of the immigration clinic was very well connected in the immigration law world. And when I said, Mm -hmm. I want to do deportation defense and I'm willing to leave the Bay Area. And I was like, I'm also willing to move to Arizona. She was like, no way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I recommend you go to the Florence Project. And she said that it was a place where like a lot of kind of seasoned immigration lawyers have gone. And it's like a, a place where like many of them started out and then left to go practice elsewhere. But it was like a very good place to get trained and that was how I ended up in my first job out of law school. So what, what advice would you give about the three L job search? And also did clinics have anything to do with that for you slash what, what other reasons did you think that clinics are worthwhile? Yeah. Cause um, there's independent reasons I think, apart oh, totally, from, yeah. you know, job search. Yeah. Um, First, I'm I'm just smiling a lot because I love your clinic law school professor. So, <laughs> yeah, she's great. an icon. I know. Yeah, <laughs> they're both icons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I get to work with them now because I work in the Bay Area, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Where was I going to go? Oh, so the three L job search process. You know what? Like hearing you talk about, I didn't make enough use of my clinic <laughs> for the three L job search, and it actually the way that it feeds in is I went to the NYU immigrant rights law clinic and it specifically focuses on deportation defense. I'm just saying that because a lot of immigration clinics work more on like humanitarian, like on asylum or um, I don't know, like visa applications, things like that. But this was actually deportation defense. And we also were focusing on like how else to use the law besides just directly representing clients. So there was like some folks that were interning in addition to helping a deportation defense case, we're interning with community organizations. I was trying to work on my legal writing, so I was interning with the Immigrant Defense Project and helping write amicus briefs. But like, so so we were, and then we would all come, come back to clinic and talk about each other's outside community projects. So even though I wasn't doing the particular- Oh, like, that's like kind of like an extra cool. clinic, but like more focused, that's cool. It was really cool. So like, so I met my partner in clinic. Um, we did not date in law school, but <laughs> dated out here. But like their externship, they were working on a coalition that was trying to pass the, the New York Dream Act. So they would come back with like, we would literally like role play scenarios. Like, okay, you're going to be this state's person. You're going to be this coalition person. You're going to be the like, I don't know. I'm just making up. But like, and we would all like help them get ready for a meeting with like an elected official or something. So I don't know. It was a really good clinic. And I use a lot of the things I learned there. So this goes back to my original point, like, because you're not learning any, you're not learning exactly how to apply the law in your doctrinal classes, you're actually learning it in clinic. So you can actually represent clients directly. You learn about case management in a safe space, 
um, where you have somebody to ask questions you learn about and then like in my clinic because we were kind of doing other outside of just direct representation stuff so I'm a good class but the 3L process I fell into thinking like fellowships were the only way to go so <laughs> fellowships are really sold to 3Ls that are going to public interest I think because they're seen as prestigious but if, if you can think of other reasons why they're like super sold it's just the prestige but I mean if you um the arguments that they make are like you can design your own project, mm-hmm. your own <laughs> ideal project. <laughs> so if any of you are already in law school, you're probably hearing this. And the fellowships that were talked about were statin. So basically when I say fellowship, it's like this foundation that is going to pay for your salary for a year or two. So that, and usually they're project-based. So you pitch a project that you're going to run. And then if they like your project, they'll pick you and they'll fund you to go work at a nonprofit usually. I think exclusively. So there's like the Equal Justice Works Fellowship, EJW, SCADEN, um, Cal- Justice Catalyst Fellows. So there's, and at, back in my day, there was Ford Fellowship. This doesn't exist anymore. I don't believe it does at least um, <laughs> for law. I think it exists for other programs, but not for law. So I fell into the trap and they really, I think it's because they're prestigious, but honestly, you should get a staff position at the nonprofit if you can. <laughs> and the reason That's I'm saying what that I is, had been, I yeah. felt like job security. Yes, exactly. You get job security. You usually, honestly, staff attorney positions usually pay more because then the fellowships, usually a lot of places like where I work right now, Pangea, when you get a project fellowship with us, we're going to pay you the same as everybody else, but we're going to take that money to make you equal. But some places don't make you equal. Some places, if the fellowship is paying 50,000, that's what you're going to make. Even if a staff attorney would make, I don't know, I'm making stuff up, but like 60, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just making up numbers, but Um, So you should get, so anyways, I'm just saying, if you're in law school and you're hearing all about fellowships, it's a lot of work on you, but once you're on the other side, it's not, it's not like you don't have job security because if the fellowship is done in a year or two, like, where do you go? It's a lot of work. You're kind of like trying to sell yourself out again, (laughs) doing different interviews. Yeah. Well, and you're going to like corporate firms who are like generally the people that fund it, which is its own particular kind of annoying thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That said, I did it. So I did a lot of interviews. <laughs> yeah, no, I went through the process too, but then I eventually just ended up taking a staff attorney position. No, yeah. And I think that's like, I'm telling you, if I could do it over, that's what I would try to do. I ended up getting the Ford Fellowship and being placed at Asian Law Caucus here in San Francisco, which is a civil rights org. And I was working in their criminal justice reform project. So they were trying to, they did a lot, but the main project I was working on was trying to disentangle ICE from local law enforcement, which you might hear is like the sanctuary laws in California and San Francisco. So I was doing that and it was amazing. It was great. And I loved it, but they didn't have funding for me after a year. Um, So then I had to look for a staff attorney job anyways. And I wanted to do deportation defense. And like Yvette said, it would have been great if I had just gone, you know, to if I had gone to clinic and just said like, hey, help me out back when I was a 3L <laughs> instead of going through the whole fellowship process. That said, I loved ALC. I love that experience. So, you know, it was, it worked out, but I could have saved myself a lot, my 3L year by not doing the whole fellowship process. I, I totally agree about like looking back and not investing so much into the fellowship process, like, especially because with Scadden, there's kind of, it's, at the time that I was applying, it was an open secret that they didn't 
fun deportation defense and definitely not detained deportation defense, which is literally what I wanted to do. But my crew services people convinced me it was like worth trying anyway. And it's like, it really wasn't actually like the applications are so much work and Mm -hmm. it like, I, cause I remember also I was working on an application when like Joseph and I were in Peru and it's just like, I remember like being in Lima, like super stressed and like, I should have just been out on a rooftop bar having a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that would have been better use of my time. Yeah, you always remember like the stuff that you could have been doing instead of the work and like not exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the last question that I wanted to ask is, is law school worth it financially? And when would you, if ever, advise someone not to go to law school because of the debt that you incur? This one's a hard question. I think I struggle to answer this one because I did get a full scholarship for tuition. I only have loans for, for my living expenses. And I think it's the hardest for public interest students who, you know, like your family's not independently wealthy um, because I don't know what the average salary is really, but I think like starting average is like 65K probably. Um, and like, depending on what city you're in. I think the starting average is that. I would probably um, say the starting average is like 50, isn't it? I think you're right. And I think I'm thinking Bay Area, like. Yeah, I'm like, I think yeah. it might be. Yeah, like I think because of how expensive the bay area is it's i'm glad the baseline is considered higher there but i think like everywhere else in the country yeah i think you're right yeah it's like 50k i would say yeah and you're probably coming out with quite a bit more debt than that a lot more um so it just seems like this impossible load i did hear that you know people were being forgiven if you're on the 10-year student loan forgiveness for working in public interest but it's having been I'm six years out now 10 years is a long time like it didn't seem not that I wouldn't be in public interest but like I've just seen people who are on that program um and like different things have have happened in their life maybe for one reason or another they're not in the law or like yeah so I think just you're not you're not sure that that program that you know you're going to finish in 10 years and you'll still have that debt so that's like a hard thing to bank on so I think it's a really hard question to answer is it worth it financially for public interest students specifically I would say like if you're if you know you're going to be in public interest the 10-year federal student loan forgiveness like Trump tried to take it away but it's still there so it's probably going to be a good option and that's like what I'm relying on and most of the people I know that are are still in public interest law but when you don't when do I not think it's worth it I think before you go to a law school and I also know people who transferred to different law schools while they were in law school but so all is not lost if you get to your law school and you're like, this ain't it, I gotta go. <laughs> but I think really trying to know what the job opportunities are from your law school. And obviously like they put out certain things in their materials, but like, if you know, okay, I wanna work in workers' rights and I wanna come back to whatever city I'm living in right now. And the Legal Aid Society for San Jose has a workers' rights program. Like who, where did their lawyers go? Like you can kind of look at the places that you want to work and see like what schools their lawyers went to, because especially like um, some of the schools that are local to your region, they might not be like highly ranked across the country, but they actually um, do have a lot of really like well-known lawyers in your field, in your city, if that makes sense. But then there's some local law schools. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like across Arizona, because 
there's a lot of Californians that moved to Arizona, but otherwise there's not a lot of people from outside other states coming in and like moving to Arizona in large numbers. So mm-hmm. generally when employers based in Arizona are hiring, they're looking at the two law schools here, which is U of A and ASU. And yeah. I don't think either rank in the top 25, but it doesn't really matter here in the local hiring market because that's like the pool of people that local employers expect to hire from so like you know here in the bay area we have stanford and berkeley and like hastings which are like great law schools or ranks really highly i should say but like golden gate university isn't ranked as high as them but places really well and like a lot of really respected litigators here go there from like immigration workers rights different programs so different law school rankings they don't mean everything However, there are some schools that are really scamming people and end up being like more expensive too. So I I think you really want to like look out to where you want to work and who are they generally hiring in that, in that field? Where are they generally hiring from? Exactly. I agree. And like this question really is why I wanted us to just say where we went to law school up front, because I like, even though the rankings aren't everything, I think they should be kind of like a rough indicator of like your earning potential, I think is definitely informed by the ranking. There's nuance to this because local markets play out differently and aren't necessarily as tethered to the rankings. And like in public interest, I would say there's very few organizations that actually like really care about the ranking of your law school like most places actually really just care about your demonstrated commitment to mm-hmm. public interest and social justice and mm-hmm. um that's kind of what's more important to demonstrate mm-hmm. i think that it's complicated it's complicated mm-hmm. analysis and i also like didn't have any debt from undergrad and then only paid for my living expenses at Stanford and Stanford has their own version of the federal loan repayment program and so they're repaying my loans and their loan repayment terms are pretty generous so like I could be a reporter that writes about the new or what's called the rights about what is it the law <laughs> <laughs> the news and the law <laughs> the law and the news <laughs> the law is the news yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll <get> um, <laughs> and they'll still pay my loans so that's like a very particular place to be because I am sick of practicing law like I am really ready to get the fuck out and I would feel a lot more trapped, a lot more suffocated if I did have that stipulation in my loan repayment program. So like, like you said, it's like you've done it for six years, but the prospect of doing it for four more <laughs> is jarring. <laughs> and it, it's like, we don't know how long we're going to live. Uh, you know, like COVID has no. really sharpened that for me, right, right. that live sharpened that knowledge for me. Yeah. And I mean, it's, we, you don't know what's going to happen to you. Not even yeah. live, but like, you don't know. It's a long time. So yeah, <laughs> 10 years <laughs> is a long time. I mean, <laughs> so this was a cheery episode. I think. Oh, sorry, y'all. 
No, I'm like, no, I don't think anybody that's been listening up to this point expects anything different. So I think everyone's like, we're the same. I'm comforted by more of the same. (laughs) And I don't know. I also just have to say, especially like in clinic or in some of the other kind of like activities that I did that were more aligned with public interest, I met some really awesome down people that Mm -hmm. I still work with today, Mm -hmm. that I still Mm -hmm. organize with, like Mm -hmm. across the country too. So when you find like your little like tribe of people that is like-minded, you guys can really fuck shit up too. So yeah. That is definitely a really amazing opportunity. And I feel like those spaces exist. They're hard to find, but if you're intentional about it, I think you can do it. Well, those are all my questions. Jayhan, did we miss anything in this conversation? I'm sure we did. <laughs> we should do one where well people... bitch we can't be here for three hours yeah well you bet <laughs> i think i think we should do have you already done like a write-in episode where people ask questions only once i haven't done that in a while did it work how did it feel <laughs> it was well you like it was literally just like asking questions about whatever so yeah, gotcha. it, it was fun i think yeah i should do another one yeah Perfect. well I'm just like I just don't know for everybody listening this was this was the inspiration <laughs> for that future episode that you're about to hear <laughs> cool uh, yeah well good luck to folks that are trying to get into law school right now and people mm. that are in it seriously mm. much love to the virtual bar takers much love to the virtual law school participants oh my God. virtual law school much like, love to the people who are forced to be in person when yeah. you don't want to be. <laughs> I actually did miss. Kudos. Can I ask you a question about law school classes? Yeah. Did you, you know, in the doctrinal classes, like really messed up things would be said by your mm-hmm. co-students. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how would you handle situations like that? And especially like, I think we're probably talking to a lot of people that are going to be hearing some, maybe like, fucked up things coming from other students about Mm -hmm. like their life experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was I was very angry at how the law school experience was playing out (laughs) so I channeled that energy into being really combative in class and like as soon as somebody would say anything I would just like raise my hand and like intellectually shade them I wish I was in your class <laughs> just be in the back room <laughs> clapping <laughs> I wish you were in the class because like I did not receive support you know like visibly in the class like maybe afterwards people would be like thank you so much for speaking up you know uh-huh. um, you're like please yeah. speak up too you know, like fuck you, fake, fake as fuck. Did you? <laughs> do you remember any examples? I'm I'm thinking about particular moments in in law school. I just remember I, I just remember that like like somebody made a point, and then I was like, whoever makes that point is disingenuous because of this reason and that reason and that reason, nice. and that like somebody like really dramatically like looked at the at the dude who had said it (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. i think i I mean that person was like somebody who you know believed in originalism i mean so 
like oh, this, yeah. this idea that we should mm-hmm. continue to make the decisions that the white supremacist slave owning founding fathers and even know and even claim to know how they would apply the law 200 years right. later even if like we're not confronted in the same situations ever so it's dumb it's also a lot like fundamentalists that are like though the bible says like i'm just making up stuff but like <laughs> yeah, um, that ideology is for sure like yeah. inflected with like christian conservatism mm-hmm. yeah yeah all right but yeah, I'm, um, that was how I dealt with it. But then also, but but by the time that was how I dealt with my first year. But then by the time I was with real, I did not give a fuck about anything. I did not give a fuck about correcting the record because mm-hmm. um, the very expensive tuition that those bitches were paying was not going into my bank account. <laughs> so it was not my role to, to, cor- to correct the record and set the mm-hmm. lesson straight. Yep. So I was minding my business <laughs> <laughs> like all of the real year. And I think that was right. That was right for me. I think that um, you should just follow your gut instinct and don't feel guilty if you don't want to say anything because mm-hmm. like some of these bitches are just very dumb. <laughs> and-, <laughs> and you don't need to be there to teach them, especially if it's like going to be at your expense too. At like your I, emotional expense, exactly. Yeah. You're talking about things that you know impact yourself, people you care about in real mm-hmm. life. This is not theoretical exercise. And for mm-hmm. a lot of your classmates who like will be privileged and white and blah, 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 like mm-hmm. you know, in a whole intersection of ways, mm-hmm. apart from just being white, won't understand that. And it will be a theoretical exercise for them. And it will be offensive for them to engage in these things as a theoretical exercise. And that's where self-preservation comes in. Like that is what I really begin to understand. It's like when women of color theorists and scholars talk about how self-preservation as a woman of color like is an act, is a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. And it, it is because these spaces are not meant for you and they're actually like meant to destroy your soul and self-esteem mm-hmm. and confidence so yeah preserving yourself and all of those things about yourself in that space is definitely revolutionary yeah i agree with all that i'm really glad <laughs> i asked you that question that was great advice <laughs> we could talk about our law school trauma further but i think that this should be more directed as we said and so i will ask on the instagram what things do you want to know about lawyering and I think we can even make it more specific about civil rights litigation and deportation defense with the goal of movement lawyering which you can Mm. speak more to than I can because you know well I guess we'll talk about it won't we Okay, well, Jehan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. You're amazing, thank iconic, you, and we'll be back on the podcast again when we do the Q and A. Awesome! It was so nice talking to you. Hope you have a good night. Bye.